The U.S. will support a new U.N. Security Council resolution calling for an indefinite pause to fighting between Israel and Hamas. It's Friday, December 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up, the latest on that U.N. resolution, a vote is scheduled for today. The pause would allow for more humanitarian aid into the region. Also, residents of a mobile home park in western Massachusetts are relieved after buying the property and keeping it away from investors. Now that we're in control of the situation, there's none of that lingering over our heads of the unknown. And this hour? We struggle and we lash out and it takes seeing who you are, loving who you are, and then somehow the whole world sees who you are. And I think that's a very human story. We hear from the director and an actor from the new adaptation of The Color Purple. Sunny today in the 30s, it's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Israel's military says it is reviewing allegations that its soldiers summarily killed 11 Palestinians in northern Gaza. The U.N.'s Office on Human Rights has called on Israel to immediately investigate. If proven, it says the deaths could be classified as a war crime. NPR's Kerry Khan reports. In response to an inquiry by NPR, Israel's military said the details of the event that reportedly took place in the Al-Ramal neighborhood of Gaza City in front of family members on December 19th were not familiar to them. In a text message, the military said a review is now underway and stressed its troops, quote, take precautions to reduce harm to those not involved in hostilities. Israel's military has told civilians to move from northern Gaza, forcing 85 percent of the population to leave their homes. Friday, Gaza's health ministry said more than 20,000 people have been killed since Israel launched its offensive following Hamas's attack on southern Israel that killed more than 1,200 people. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani is declaring bankruptcy. That comes a week after a federal jury ordered that he pay $148 million in damages for defaming two Georgia election workers. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass has more. This week, a federal judge ordered Giuliani to immediately pay the former election workers, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, saying Giuliani proved an uncooperative litigant and may move to conceal his assets. Bankruptcy would not likely erase the damages Giuliani owes. He reported between $1 and $10 million in assets and $153 million in debts, including tax liabilities and legal fees. Following the 2020 election, Giuliani falsely accused Moss and Freeman of election fraud, exposing them to a torrent of threats. They're now suing again to stop him from continuing to tell lies about them. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. A Washington state jury has acquitted three Tacoma police officers of murder and manslaughter in the 2020 killing of Manny Ellis, a black man. The officers said Ellis attacked them. Video showed Ellis hogtied, tasered, and at one point in a chokehold. He warned the officers he could not breathe. Tacoma Mayor Victoria Woodards expressed outrage after the verdict. I want to acknowledge the anger, the distrust, the doubt, the fear, the hurt, and the exhaustion that we as black people have experienced as a result of the history of policing in this country. The local medical examiner in Washington state had ruled Ellis's death was a homicide. You're listening to NPR News. 
I'm Sharon Brody. This is WBUR in Boston. The Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is once again requiring everyone to wear masks inside its facilities. The mandate follows an increase in respiratory illness in the region. State health data show that includes a more than 20 percent increase in COVID cases across Massachusetts in the past week. Dana-Farber says the mask mandate will remain in place for the foreseeable future. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts are calling for a review of proposed changes to emergency response capabilities at Seabrook Nuclear Power Station. The senators sent the request to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission yesterday. In it, they expressed concerns over how the plan increases the distance between off-site emergency response sites and the power plants. They worry that would leave communities in Massachusetts and New Hampshire vulnerable should a nuclear emergency occur. The populations of all six New England states are growing again, Sarah Gibson reports. That comes after some states experienced population loss following the start of the pandemic. According to an analysis from the University of New Hampshire of most recent U.S. Census estimates, some of the trends seen in the first few years of the pandemic may be shifting. For starters, the states that were losing population, likely due to COVID-19 deaths, are now growing again. That includes Massachusetts and Connecticut. New Hampshire and Maine, which saw an influx of newcomers in 2020 and 2021, still saw population growth last year, but not as much. Overall, Maine grew by the largest percentage of the New England states. The paper notes that even though population gains are larger than last year, they're still low compared to historic trends. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. Two Rhode Island men are facing charges for a fight at Gillette Stadium that ended in a man's death. The Norfolk District Attorney says the two are facing assault and battery and disorderly conduct charges. Investigators say the two fought with 53-year-old Dale Mooney during a Patriots game in September. The investigators say Mooney died from a heart issue. The two suspects are not charged with his death. They're due in court next month. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. The Bruins will be in Winnipeg tonight to skate with the Jets. The Bees are 5-2-3 and three in their last 10 games, but remain in first place in the Eastern Conference. Sunny skies today in Boston, temperatures reaching the mid-30s in the 20s overnight, increasing clouds tomorrow in the low 40s tomorrow. For Sunday, mostly cloudy, a chance of a snow flurry in the morning, highs in the mid-40s. And on Christmas Day, a partly sunny Monday and near 50 degrees. It's 22 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Alfred Peace Loan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C.
And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The death toll in Gaza has topped 20,000, according to the health ministry there. There had been proposals at the U.N. Security Council to call for a ceasefire and to let the U.N. inspect aid trucks to speed up food and fuel destined for Gaza. But under the threat of a possible U.S. veto, the council has been deadlocked for three days and those ideas seem to be losing steam. Yet there could be a vote on something today. NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman has been following all this. Michelle, three days, three days of negotiation. What's making it so difficult for the council to get a vote? So the United Arab Emirates, which is on the Security Council, has been working with other Arab states to push for a humanitarian ceasefire, and they want to speed up aid. And the first draft resolution they put out called for the United Nations to inspect the trucks going into Gaza rather than Israel, which has Gaza under blockade. You know, right now, Israel inspects all the trucks to make sure there are no weapons being smuggled in for Hamas. And the U.S. has been working really hard to get Israel to speed that up. The Biden administration really didn't want a U.N. resolution to further complicate an already complicated situation, but they also didn't want to be in a position of vetoing yet another Security Council resolution as U.N. officials warn of famine and as health officials in Gaza report that the death toll has topped 20,000. What might they be able to pass at the Security Council? So last night, the United States ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, told reporters that there is a new text and she seemed to be satisfied with the changes in it. Take a listen. We have worked hard and diligently over the course of the past week with uh, the Emiratis, uh, with others, with Egypt, to come up with a resolution that we can support. And we do have that resolution now. We're ready to vote on it. She didn't say how the U.S. would vote, whether it would support it, say yes or abstain. But the goal of all these changes, A, is to make sure that the U.S. is not going to veto the resolution as it has done with others and not look as isolated. So for that to happen, how much of that draft resolution had to be watered down? Well, it doesn't call for a new inspection regime. Instead, it asked the U.N. Secretary General to appoint an aid coordinator for Gaza. It calls for urgent steps to allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access, but it drops a call for an urgent cessation of hostilities. It simply calls for creating the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. Thomas Greenfield says that the draft remains, in in her words, very strong. Um, She said, it gives Arab countries what they think they need to get more aid into Gaza. The UN and Israel um, have really been going at each other over Gaza since the Israeli offensive began. So how does all that play into this? Well, there's a lot of mistrust, and I think that was behind all these tough negotiations. Um, 135 UN workers have been killed in Gaza, and the UN has been warning of mass hunger as Israel continues to press its campaign against Hamas. And Israel often accuses the UN of being biased against Israel. That's been a longtime complaint, but particularly in the wake of the attack by Hamas on October 7th. Um, Israel says the UN just hasn't done enough to condemn Hamas for that. That's NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman. Michelle, thanks. Thank you. Qatar is a close ally of the U.S., but the Gulf Arab country also gets a lot of criticism for hosting the political leaders of Hamas who live there. 
The tightrope walk helps make Qatar a player in talks for another pause in the war in Gaza, like the one last month that allowed for the exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian detainees. NPR's Aya Batrawi spoke with an official in Qatar about the ties to Hamas, a group the U.S. can't ignore, but doesn't want to speak directly with either. I meet Qatar's foreign ministry spokesperson, Majid al-Ansari, in Qatar's capital, Doha, as his country's mediating once again between Hamas and Israel. We haven't stopped working. Our negotiators understand that every delay is lives lost on uh, on both sides. Qatar's capital is a city of high-rise towers and man-made islands that provide safe haven for shadowy figures, ranging from senior Taliban to Hamas leaders in exile. Closed-circuit cameras keep watch over the city. Hamas set up here in 2006, when the Bush administration asked if Qatar would host the group's exiled leadership after it won elections in the Gaza Strip. El Ansari says successive White House administrations, right through Biden's, have used this back channel to their advantage to deal with the group they can't ignore but don't want to speak with directly. Unless this channel of communication was active, the only thing we were looking uh, towards is the abyss, is war. Qatar has drawn praise, but also criticism, including from some in Congress, over its policy of talking to groups the U.S. wants to isolate. And a few years ago, neighbors like Saudi Arabia and other Gulf Arab states cut diplomatic relations with Qatar because of its ties with Iran and Islamist groups in the region. The U.S. considers Hamas a terrorist organization, and Israel has vowed to destroy Hamas and go after its leadership wherever it is, raising the stakes for Qatar even more. But as Qatar sees it, Hamas is still around, and this back channel remains useful, and could be even after this war. It is too early to take any decisions on severing uh, relations or severing this channel of, uh, of communication, but... Everything on the ground, as I said, is very fluid, and we have to wait and see what happens. Analysts say this high-stakes policy has also been useful to Qatar's interests, giving this small but wealthy country international clout. And its ties to groups like Hamas and other offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood are a card Qatar can play. James Dorsey, an honorary fellow at the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute, explains. They're not ideologically bound to Hamas, uh, which is the implication of some of the criticism. I think they recognized early on that, and and were right, basically, that Hamas was a player and that you had to deal with it. And that's now paying off. But Qatar's most important ally is the U.S. It has spent billions on U.S. military hardware and to host thousands of American troops at a sprawling airbase. Here's Al-Ansari again. We believe in the strategic side of that relationship and, and part of Our relationship with the U.S. is based on this frank discussion. We don't cater to whatever the administration wants to hear. We tell them exactly what we think. And with Israel, Qatar doesn't have formal ties, but the two have long coordinated on Gaza. Qatar's foreign ministry tells NPR the country has spent $4.1 billion over the past decade to support the Gaza Strip. Some flowed through the United Nations, like cash aid to poor families, and some was carried into Gaza in bags of cash to pay the salaries of teachers and doctors. Al-Ansari says this was all done through Israel. We were fitting the bill on, on Israel's behalf here gladly because this was helping uh, people. and It was helping the cause of, of peace all, uh, altogether. The money helped keep Gaza from collapsing. Some in Israel now say it kept Hamas afloat, and that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did this to weaken Hamas's rival, the Palestinian Authority. In any case, El Ansari says Qatar's mediation efforts won't stop. And we will continue to do that, regardless of the cost on our image and, and reputation, because we believe that at the end, people do see and understand 
how important this role is because we're having the discussions that the political calculation of others don't allow them to do. But he cautions, Qatar isn't going to pick up the tab in Gaza for the destruction left by Israel's war this time, not before there's a path for Palestinian statehood and peace. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Doha. This week, we're hearing from some of our listeners about their favorite holiday traditions. And this morning, we have a look at some genuinely chaotic preparation. For a mother and son in upstate New York, picking out a Christmas tree is a literal race against the clock. NPR's Rachel Martin has her story. The timer starts once we leave the driveway. Every winter, 25-year-old Yerbal Kevra and his 64-year-old mother, Anita, climb into their 2006 Honda Element and head to their local cut-your-own-Christmas-tree farm. We park as near to the trees as we are allowed. Usually we, I mean, it's 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 an illegal parking job. <laughs> you know, as near as we can get to the trees. They hop out, split up, and race through the rows of Christmas trees. They call this the Christmas Tree Grand Prix. In order to win, Yerbal and Anita need to select, cut, bag, and transport their tree home faster than they did the previous year. It's like a Formula One pit stop. Everything is very choreographed here. Their best time? 14.34, I think, was our quickest. That's 14 minutes and 34 seconds door-to-door. It came out of a single motherhood sheer desperation where I could get a Christmas tree and I had a limited amount of time to do it. And so I was like, we've got to cut to the chase. So I invented the Christmas tree Grand Prix in order to move things along. Racing runs in their family. They've got several generations of mechanics who developed and raced cars at circuits up and down the eastern seaboard. Yerbel says the Christmas Tree Grand Prix helps him continue that tradition in his own way. I love racing and I love I love watching it, but really only rich kids get to actually have a a, a proper chance in in the in the sport. So I like to I like to do the Christmas Tree Grand Prix, especially to try to reclaim some of that motorsport legacy and heritage and all that. And then we have a celebration afterwards. Beating their previous record means Yerbal and Anita get to stand on a homemade podium, a five-gallon bucket turned upside down in their backyard. We'll play the national anthem on our phone, and then we'll play the uh, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then obviously get sprayed with champagne. Their path to victory changes each year with new routes to other tree vendors. And they've even considered expanding the race into a multi-stage affair. We might enjoy adding the extra leg of of bringing the tree inside putting it into the tree stand and watering it as part of that but um you know some parts of life are perfectly fine being taken at a slower pace (laughs) i think a frenetic holiday tradition courtesy of npr's rachel martin This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, you'll get one journalist's take on the perils of criticizing Israel. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. 
Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alzo Slade admitted he was one of the 50% of men who think that if called on, they could land a commercial airliner. Nobody would die, but you would not be able to use the plane again. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. I am definitely not one of those men who thinks they could beat Olympic marathon medalist Molly Seidel in a race and will tell her so personally on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. AAA expects more than 100 million Americans to travel over the next few days for the holidays. In Massachusetts, the busiest day on the roads will be tomorrow. And AAA predicts the worst spot will be Interstate 95 between Boston and New Hampshire. The other busiest time in the next week will be Thursday with a mix of holiday travelers and people who have to work. It will be sunny today with temperatures reaching the mid-30s. Clear tonight and in the 20s, increasing clouds tomorrow with highs in the low 40s. It's 22 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Some stories just seem to stay with us. That's certainly the case for Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Her 1982 novel won a Pulitzer Prize and has since been the basis for a movie, then a Broadway musical, a radio play, and on Christmas Day, it's coming back to the big screen as a musical, but with new music and a new treatment. The story about African-American women who face physical and emotional brutality in early 20th century Georgia, but still manage to find hope and healing, is still an emotional whirlwind. In this new version, Director Blitz Bazawule finds new joy in the work, an antidote to some of the pain. That's the voice of Danielle Brooks. She shines as Sophia. That's the role Oprah Winfrey played back in the 1985 film that was before her talk show went national and Oprah became, well, Oprah. She is a producer on this new adaptation. I spoke with Bazawile and Brooks about how The Color Purple came into their lives. For Danielle, the 2005 play was her first experience seeing live theater as a teenager. 
and I was just in awe. I could not believe just the amount of talent that was on that stage. And I was like, what? You can do this? And also that the story was so immersed and wrapped up in God, and I'm a preacher's kid. It just meant so much to me. And I saw a path for my life. And so I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I have to get out of South Carolina and pursue this thing. Ended up attending Juilliard. And after Juilliard, started to audition for a lot of Broadway, off-Broadway shows and didn't understand why I was not getting them. With time, you realize we make plans, but God has strategy, and he was strategizing and orchestrating for me to have my first Broadway experience being in The Color Purple mm. 10 years later. Wow. And of course, later down the road, you start to hear buzz of this movie happening, and you're like, oh my gosh, will it be possible for me to be in it? And then I finally get that uh, famous now viral moment <laughs> with Miss Oprah passing the torch to me to play Sophia. Wow. I am here representing all things purple to tell you that you are our Sophia Sophia. <laughs> Such a okay, Blitz. You grew up in Ghana. How did the work originally come to you? Did you read the book in college? Did you see the original movie? Yes, it, it was assigned reading um, for us in college. And, you know, that was the first time I'd read something that really connected the continent of Africa to the diaspora in a really meaningful way. And this was a really, really special point in my life, getting the opportunity to reimagine it by looking into my own life. You know, my mother dealt with severe trauma. So when it came to Sealy, even though the, the source of trauma was different, I knew and understood how people like my mother had built in their heads first this grand life and this grand life of healing for us. And I knew that if I could just approximate that for Sealy's life, then in fact we'll have a great opportunity to contribute meaningfully to the canon. So, Danielle, back to you. You're playing the role that made Oprah Winfrey famous. I mean, Sophia was her first <laughs> film role. Was there anything intimidating yeah. about it, and how did you move past it? I think there's several things. One, having had a year on Broadway, eight shows a week, really delving into the character and knowing her inside and out really helped build my confidence first for the audition. Let's just start there, <laughs> okay? But once I got through that part, that's when I felt I had the permission. Like hearing it from her mouth told me that she is saying, Danielle, make this your own. And so from that moment, I, was, I felt a freedom. I ain't gonna let you marry my son because you in the family way. Petty girl like you can take his mind. But you can't have his money. He ain't got no money. See, my sister and her husband say I can live with them as long as I please. Now, I come here out of respect. But if there ain't nothing to get, that show ain't nothing to get. Why do you think this work has endured for so long in so many different forms? And I think people forget how controversial it was when it first came out. You know, I said it won a Pulitzer Prize and it's been, you know, much acclaimed. But people say, oh, it's too much. Makes black men look bad. You know, they didn't believe things that these things actually happened to people. Why do you think it has endured for so long in so many different forms? Danielle, do you want to sure. start? Sure. I mean, these lessons about 
you know, coming into yourself, being the hero of your own story, forgiving, learning how to love, learning how to get back up on your feet, that will forever remain a part of being a human being. And as long as that is happening, which is until we die, this story will have meaning. This story will have purpose. The story is about going from being unseen to seen which is as human as it gets. And it begins with invisibility to ourselves. We, we can't see who we are. And so, you know, we, we struggle and we, we lash out at the world. And it takes seeing who you are, loving who you are, and then kind of beginning to build yourself. And then somehow the whole world sees who you are. And I think that's a very human story. I also really believe that it's what Alice Walker bequeathed us was a very specific story, story of a black woman in the rural South who works her way from being unseen to seen. And because of that specificity, there lies universality. And these feelings of oppression and freedom, the oscillation between joy and pain, these are things that are human. And I think that those two things are what makes the story truly enduring. That is director Blitz Basarule and actor Danielle Brooks. This new healing musical version of The Color Purple comes to theaters on Christmas Day. Thank you both so much for talking with us, and happy holidays to you both. Thank you, Thank Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Such a pleasure. Thank you. What about tears when I'm happy? What about This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition, how oysters became a key and versatile ingredient in the New England holiday dinner. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. All aboard. Trains at Science Park now open. See model trains in the classic winter landscape or Polar Express in 4D. Visit mos.org. And the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 20,000 people have been killed by Israeli forces since Hamas attacked southern Israel on October 7th. That assault left more than 1,200 people dead in Israel and sparked a war that's in its third month. NPR's Frank Langford reports from Tel Aviv. The death toll now is approaching one in 100 Gazans. After 10 weeks of bombardment, Sari Bashi of Human Rights Watch says mass casualties were predictable. It's expected that if you drop bombs on crowded city blocks, you will kill many, many children. And that's what we're seeing in Gaza. Gaza officials say about 70 percent of the dead are women and children and more remain under rubble. The figures don't distinguish combatants from civilians. The war began after Hamas killed 1,200 people in Israel, according to Israel which accuses Hamas of using civilians as human shields. Frank Langford, NPR News, Tel Aviv. 
The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says she's ready to vote on a U.N. resolution involving Israel and Hamas. A vote on the document's been delayed several times amid negotiations over the wording. That resolution is aimed at getting more humanitarian aid into Gaza. An estimated 20,000 Ukrainians have had amputations since Russian forces invaded the country nearly two years ago. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Sharon Brody. A billion-dollar plan to build a power line in Maine to bring renewable energy to the New England grid appears to be dead. Yesterday, the Maine Public Utilities Commission terminated the project. Murray Carpenter reports Massachusetts was set to pay for nearly half of it. The power line was planned to run from Glenwood Plantation to Cooper's Mills, connecting the proposed 1,000-megawatt King Pine wind farm to the central Maine electrical grid. Proponents said it would help Maine meet its renewable energy goals. The PUC awarded the contract to LS Power last October, and Massachusetts committed to funding 40 percent of the project two months later. But when LS Power published maps of its proposed route in July, opposition quickly emerged. Now, the PUC says it's been unable to negotiate terms of the contract with LS Power, including the actual cost of the project. On Thursday, commissioners announced they were severing the deal and putting the project out to bid once again. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Murray Carpenter. The mayor of Quincy is cheering what he views as a win in his fight against a new bridge to Long Island and Boston Harbor. He tells the Boston Globe that a ruling this week by state environmental officials could help delay or stop the project. The old bridge was closed and torn down in 2014 over safety concerns. The city of Boston wants it rebuilt so it can create an addiction recovery campus on the island. Quincy officials are trying to block that. The next hearing on the bridge is scheduled for March. The city of Worcester is getting nearly half a million dollars from the federal government to improve street safety. The money from the Department of Transportation will be focused on roads with high crash risks. Ten other similar grants were given to communities around the state. It's 733. WVUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. The Bruins return from a short break tonight. They'll visit the Winnipeg Jets. Despite losing their past couple of games, the Bees remain in first place in the Eastern Conference. They're six points ahead of second-place Toronto. Sunny skies today in Boston, temperatures in the mid-30s, overnight lows in the 20s, increasing clouds tomorrow with temperatures in the low 40s. Sunday should be mostly cloudy, a chance of a snow flurry in the morning, mid-40s, and on Christmas Day, partly sunny and near 50 degrees. It's 22 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. For journalist Masha Gessen, Israel's assault on Gaza feels alarmingly familiar. With the mass displacement, 
with the denial of health care and with indiscriminate bombing and shelling, the ghetto is being liquidated. Gessen, who's Jewish and whose family lost loved ones in the Holocaust, faced an immediate backlash for likening Gaza to Nazi-era ghettos in a recent essay for The New Yorker. The piece came out just as they were to receive the prestigious Hannah Arendt Prize in Germany for political thought. A prominent sponsor withdrew support in protest. The venue where the ceremony was to be held also pulled out. Gessen did ultimately get the prize in a scaled-down ceremony, and soon after, they spoke to me about the backlash. Gessen told me the comparison is not only fitting, but essential for breaking the taboo that the Holocaust was a singular event of human cruelty. I believe that to deliver on the promise of never again, we have to constantly be checking to see if we are once again sliding into the darkness which I believe is something that's happening in Gaza today. The essay looks at how memory culture, particularly in Germany, has sort of ossified and given birth to a vast and rather bizarre bureaucracy that polices what it perceives as anti-Semitism. But anti-Semitism is often, too often, defined as criticism of Israel rather than actual anti-Semitic attacks and harassment. And I wondered if you saw any similar policing here in the U.S. of the discourse around Israel's policies. I think we're increasingly hearing that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And certainly when Jewish activists, and especially Israeli Jewish activists, are speaking out against Israeli policies to have non-Jewish people brand that as anti-Semitism is downright bizarre, but also dangerous. I see a very strong current of wielding anti-Semitism as a cudgel against, among others, Jewish people in Representative Stefanik's campaign against university presidents. One of the presidents that she grilled, the president of MIT, is Jewish. And I say also that the entire premise of this campaign against universities is profoundly anti-Semitic, which is that universities receive a lot of Jewish money, so Jewish donors should be mobilized to withdraw their money, which is just such a clear anti-Semitic trope and so clearly weaponized by the right wing, which again is, is something that's very similar to what's happened here in Germany. The way criticism of Israeli policy became linked or equated with anti-Semitism. How did that happen? This has been one of the top priorities of the consecutive Netanyahu governments. Netanyahu has forged alliances, particularly with right-wing governments of European countries, such as Hungary and Poland, in order to prevent an anti-occupation consensus in the European Union. It's been a very successful, very concerted, years-long campaign on the part of Israel. And one of the vehicles for this equation is the International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition of anti-Semitism, which effectively equates anti-Zionism or criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. And this definition has been adopted by all European countries and the U.S. State Department. 
We started off talking about the premise of your piece where you make comparisons with the Holocaust and the situation today. And, you know, this comparison isn't something that's really done. And you also make a comparison that caused backlash, saying Gaza right now is like a Nazi-era Jewish ghetto, and, and that right now the ghetto is being liquidated. But you must have known writing it, it would get this type of backlash. Why did you make that comparison? Why was it important for you to do that? If we take the promise of never again seriously, we once again have to constantly be asking ourselves, are we laying the foundations for the mass murder of millions of people? Are we employing, or as part of the world employing, the same kinds of tactics that were employed by the Nazis? I think there's every reason to say that that is exactly what's happening. Human Rights Watch issued a report stating unequivocally that Israel is using starvation as a weapon of war which not only is a war crime, but it is a war crime that was committed by the Nazis. This was a concerted policy of Nazi Germany to inflict disease and starvation, particularly on Polish Jews living in the ghettos. I think we're seeing the exact same thing happening in Gaza. Now, with nine out of ten Gazans internally displaced, with half of Gaza's hospitals destroyed and the remaining hospitals providing only partial services, with the majority of the population of Gaza suffering from starvation, we can say that it really resembles the situation not only of ghettos, but of the liquidation of ghettos in Nazi-occupied Europe. And this is the moment for the world to say, if we're going to make good on the promise of never again, we have to step in now. Now, in Gessen's own piece in The New Yorker, they do note the differences, that Nazis dehumanizing claims about Jews had, quote, no basis in reality, while Israel does face very real violent attacks. Either way, though, Gessen argues the resulting policies are similar, the suffering of an entire people dealing with blockade and violence. The thing is, if we are so morally willful that the worst can still be stopped in Gaza, and this comparison to the liquidation of the ghetto can be proven wrong, that would be the best possible outcome of comparing Gaza to a Jewish ghetto. Journalist and New Yorker writer Masha Gessen, thanks so much for speaking with us and for your time. Thank you for having me. For more coverage and differing views, go to npr.org slash updates. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the CEO of Microsoft discusses the opportunities and potential dangers of artificial intelligence. 
Sunny today with temperatures in the mid-30s in Boston, overnight lows in the 20s, increasing clouds tomorrow in the low 40s. On Sunday, mostly cloudy, a chance of a snow flurry in the morning, mid-40s. And for Christmas Day, partly sunny skies and near 50 degrees. It is 22 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Trader Joe's broke the law when it fired a union employee in western Massachusetts. That is according to a new ruling from the National Labor Relations Board. The board also found the company retaliated against workers at the union store in Hadley by withholding retirement benefits. Under the ruling, Trader Joe's must repay the fired worker and offer him his job back. Trader Joe's has not publicly commented on the decision. It's Christmas time, which means Santa Claus is coming to town. That's Dan Greenleaf. He is a popular portrayer of Santa Claus and is the co-founder of the New England Santa Society. And he says Santa actors have been in short supply this year. That's because St. Nick's are in high demand at New England businesses such as restaurants. Greenleaf says if you're looking for a last minute Santa actor, then you should check with a group like his. All of our Santas have background checks. They carry liability insurance. They have quality suits. They've gone through training. My biggest concern is how do we build our ability to supply the Santas that have quality? Greenleaf says the New England Santa Society is working to hire more people of color to portray Santa and Santas who can speak languages other than English. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldig. And I'm A. Martinez. More and more online sellers are using images generated by artificial intelligence to entice customers. AI lets retailers showcase products that may not exist yet and probably won't look the same when actually produced. It's a whole new reason for buyers to beware. Our colleagues at The Indicator from Planet Money, Adrian Ma and Waylon Wong, tell us more. So recently, Hassan Sayyad is scrolling through his Instagram feed. You know, like we do, scroll, scroll, scroll. And then suddenly he stops. His eyes come to rest on an ad for a jacket. I was like, okay, maybe this is my calling to just own this jacket. It looks really cool. So he clicks through. It takes him to a website called ccmom.cc, and he places an order. And when it finally did arrive, he tore it open to find... Looks like it, but... That it was a jacket, but it wasn't the jacket. There's no quilting. There is none of the details that appear in the image exist in this jacket. It's just a printed design. So Asan says even before he received the jacket, he had started to suspect something was off. So he went back to the website, ccmom.cc. 
and it looked legit. But then he took a closer look at the product page for the jacket, and that's when he started to wonder if he was looking at an actual photo of the jacket he ordered, or if this image was generated by AI. You know, using one of those programs like Dali or Stable Diffusion. To be clear, it can be incredibly difficult to tell if an image is made with AI just by looking at it. So Hassan does not know for certain that the picture of the jacket was made with AI, and neither do we. When we reached out to the company CC Mom directly, we didn't get a response. Asan actually got his PhD researching how AI can be used to generate images, and he believes there are some clues. Looking deeper into these details, like the corners, the zippers, when you look at them, these are all look like AI generated. You can see that the zipper is not symmetric. It looks kind of squiggly in parts. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And like there are other things that you can kind of take a look at, right? Like on the quilting itself, you will see some very random lines. In this new era of AI generated images, Hani Farid says consumers are right to be skeptical when shopping online. Hani is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who specializes in digital forensics. We're seeing it on e-commerce sites everywhere where people are posting things that either don't exist or are exaggerations of what they look like. So we asked Hani, what can consumers do about this? Does he have any tips for spotting AI-generated images? These technologies are developing very quickly. And whatever weaknesses I can point to you right now won't be there three, six, nine months from now. Hani says instead of putting all the burden on consumers to spot potential scams, he says companies should play a role too. So if online retailers find sellers using AI in deceptive ways, they should boot those sellers off the platform. And one more idea Hani says has some promise is digital watermarking. Think of it as a seal of authenticity, except the opposite, like a seal of inauthenticity. Until there are really reliable ways of spotting potential fakes, consumers more than ever should just beware. Adrian Ma. Waylon Wong, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This is NPR News. It is a Friday on WBUR. That means StoryCorps is coming up. At 825, a man and his third grade teacher reunite more than 50 years later. It's 749. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com and Summer Orchestra Institute at New England Conservatory for students 13 through 18. Priority registration ends February 4th. Apply at necmusic.edu. As you support organizations that have real meaning in your life and throughout your community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund helps become something a lot bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it will help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The U.S. will vote yes today on a new U.N. resolution calling for an indefinite pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. Investigators in the Czech Republic are searching for a motive behind yesterday's mass shooting that left at least 14 people dead, the deadliest in the country since World War II. Politicians in Chicago are calling for federal help as Texas Governor Greg Abbott promises to send more migrants from his state to the city. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. It's 22 degrees in Boston, sunny today, temperatures in the mid-30s. WBUR supporters include Jose Mateo Ballet Theater. Rediscover the magic of the Nutcracker at the Strand in Dorchester, now through the 24th. Tickets from $25. Ballettheater.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Sharon Brody. Several mobile home residents in western Massachusetts have banded together to purchase their park. It was put up for sale, and the residents used the state's right-of-first refusal law to buy it before investors could. WBUR's Simone Rios has their story. Mobile home parks have become an attractive investment for firms across the country. But in Massachusetts, residents are able to match any bid that comes in. And that's what happened at Bissell Villa Estates in Hinsdale. Gary Bird has lived at the park for 15 years. When residents learned that the park owners had received an offer from an investor, Bird says they decided to form a cooperative and figure out what it would take to buy the park themselves. Now that they own the land their homes sit on, Bird says there's a sense of relief across the park. Now that we're in control of the situation, you know, I take my dogs for a walk simply up the road and, you know, it just feels good to know that there's none of that lingering over our heads of the unknown. Bissellville Estates is home to 29 units and the land sold for $600,000. Residents borrowed an additional $180,000 to make improvements like cleaning up oil contamination and fixing electrical equipment. A nonprofit called the Cooperative Development Institute helped the residents organize and put together their winning offer. Nora Gosselin works with the Institute. She says this is the only park purchased by residents this year. It's a really tough market with interest rates and prices and what residents face. So just like another group being able to purchase their community in the state where it's becoming harder and harder to exercise that right of first refusal is just big win. She says this is the only park bought by residents in Massachusetts this year. Gosselin says Bissellville residents spent months organizing and it paid off. She says mobile home residents in other areas are facing big hurdles as they try to purchase the parks where they live. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. What's the main attraction at your holiday feast? Roast turkey? Lasagna? How about oysters? Those briny little bivalves used to be the big stars on Christmas Day. Food historian Susan Benjamin dug up some old recipes to take us back through this audio time capsule. So why were oysters so popular at Christmas? There are a million reasons why. One of them is they were really bountiful all throughout the 1700s into the 1800s when Europeans came to the New England shores. They were confronted with oysters, and I mean lots of oysters. The Native Americans had been eating them for 9,000 years. They were huge. Some of them could have been a foot long. Everybody was eating them. 
you'd find them in these upscale hotels, but also in taverns where they would just have buckets of oysters that they would eat and throw the shells on the floor. They became a real holiday favorite, though, in the late 1800s. And the reason for that came with the celebration of Christmas becoming a more elaborate affair. And how could you leave out, even for a moment, something that was so important and so versatile as the New England oyster? The array of oysters was crazy. To find these recipes, I went where I always go, which was to old cookbooks, old menus, and especially to old newspapers. If you want the real old-fashioned Christmas dinner going back to the Victorian era, a typical dinner probably started with oyster soup and then turkey with oyster stuffing and cranberry sauce. No surprises there. Then you get into your deviled oysters, which were the prequel to deviled eggs. And then you have your scalloped oysters. You have oyster souffle. You have oyster pate. Oysters served with pickles and olives and hot chips. And then you have oyster salad. This is made with oysters, plus boiled eggs, raw eggs, pepper, salt, mustard, all tossed with vinegar. For all of the stardom of oysters, by the 1950s, oysters barely made a peep at a Christmas menu. Maybe there was an occasional mention of smoked oysters. So why was that? There's a lot of reasons. The dwindling down of oysters started in Prohibition when the pubs, taverns, and other popular venues where everybody was eating them um, were shut down and the oyster sales shut down with them. But also in the 20s and moving forward in history, you find a real increasing awareness of food safety issues. But most important, the oyster population dwindled down significantly to alarming numbers due to the overharvesting pollution and disease that basically wiped out this once huge industry. Eventually, and now we're talking maybe the 1960s, they became a nostalgic Christmas food. One food writer referred to them as traditional oysters. So they were so unusual that they were a throwback until the 1970s. And at this point, one reporter told their reading public in 1971 some good news. Oysters were on the rebound and told people exactly how to make them. In addition to oyster stew and scalloped oysters, you would have, get your pens out, oyster loaf bake, which was essentially flour-dipped oysters baked in bread with garlic, pepper, hot sauce, olives, and dill pickles on the top, right? Really, who could resist that? And now there are oyster farms all up and down the New England coastline going all the way up to Maine. And there are so many ways to eat oysters these days. You know, bring them home and check them. That wonderful, splendid little crackling sound makes you really want them. You just pick them up, squirt a little bit of lemon in and right down they go. And so real if you're in New England. It's part of our DNA. We know this. 
These days, you can get oysters just about anywhere. And my favorite way, really easy. A half shell, a little bit of lemon. Mmm. So salty. Oh, everybody, happy holidays. WBUR's Andrea Shea produced this holiday soundbite. You can find a few of Susan Benjamin's oyster recipes at WBUR.org. Chef Jack Zhang is coming to City Space Monday, January 8th. He'll talk about his ways of getting kids to eat better and love all kinds of food. Get details and tickets at WBUR.org events. Sunny today in Boston, temperatures in the mid-30s, clear tonight in the 20s, increasing clouds tomorrow, and highs in the low 40s. It is 22 degrees in Boston as we are coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A vote is planned at the UN Security Council today on calling for a long-term humanitarian pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. It's Friday, December 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up, the fallout from this week's decision by Colorado's highest court to remove former President Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot. One part has been the uptick in violent rhetoric in some online forums. Also this hour. 23, I think, will be looked at as the year we started using AI. It just sort of became part of our lives. A conversation with the CEO of Microsoft about what he sees as the opportunities and dangers of artificial intelligence. Plus, the corruption scandal that's affecting the government of Japan. And what goes on in our brains when we hear nostalgic music during the holidays. Sunny today in the 30s, it's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Health authorities in Gaza say more than 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks since the war started two months ago. Thousands more are unaccounted for. The war began when Hamas militants attacked Israel. Israel says the militants killed about 1,200 people. Hamas is also holding more than 100 people hostage. After several days of delays and tough negotiations, the UN Security Council is expected to adopt a resolution to try to get more aid into Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports diplomats changed the text to avoid a United States veto. The U.S. has vetoed U.N. calls for a ceasefire and objected to some of the ideas in this latest draft resolution, but eager to avoid another showdown that leaves both Israel and the U.S. isolated on the world stage, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says diplomats worked hard and diligently on a new text. The draft resolution is a very strong resolution that is fully supported by the Arab group that provides them uh, what they feel is needed to get humanitarian assistance on the ground. She wouldn't say if she would vote yes or just abstain. The resolution calls for a U.N. humanitarian coordinator and more aid routes into Gaza. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Chicago is housing thousands of migrants who were sent there by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Now reports are emerging of poor conditions at one migrant shelter in the city. From member station WBEZ, Michael Puente says a migrant child died at the shelter this week. 
Earlier this week at one shelter, five-year-old Giancarlos Martinez Rivero died. The exact cause of death has yet to be determined, but health officials say it does not appear that he died of an infectious disease. But migrant advocates are calling for the city to do better and for the state and federal governments to do more. Michael Puente reporting. The Texas governor has started to fly migrants to Chicago instead of using buses. Chicago is impounding the buses. President Biden will commute the sentences of 11 people who are serving time for nonviolent drug offenses. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports it's the second time since April that Biden has shortened such sentences. The White House says the sentences of the 11 individuals, some of whom received mandatory life sentences, are disproportionately long. In addition to the clemency actions, Biden is also issuing a proclamation that will pardon marijuana offenses like possession and use on federal lands. In a statement, Biden said, quote, too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. He also urged governors to take actions in their own states regarding marijuana laws. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Sharon Brody. The head of the MBTA calls several recent safety problems during track work on the T unacceptable. The three incidents have been labeled as close calls where workers were at risk of injury because of mistakes. No one was hurt. MBTA General Manager Phil Eng told WBUR's Radio Boston the incidents are under investigation. He says he believes they came to light because of a shift in the T's culture around safety and openness. We want our employees to report incidents. Some of the things that we've heard is that in the past they would report things and they felt like management wasn't listening, which is why it's very important for me. We want the workforce to know we're focused on their needs. A federal report last year criticized the MBTA's safety culture and called on the agency to make changes. The state will open an emergency shelter in Cambridge today to handle the increasing number of families in need. Up to 70 families will be housed in a former courthouse. The building is owned by the state. It will only be available evenings and overnight for families who've been determined to be eligible for emergency assistance by the state. State data show that more than 7,500 families are enrolled in the shelter system right now. Worcester will soon provide free menstrual products at its public facilities. Officials will install product dispensers in six buildings run by the Department of Public Facilities this spring. Another six will be installed later next year at year-round buildings operated by the Public Works and Parks Department. Worcester City Manager tells the Telegram and Gazette the move aims to help the city's most vulnerable populations. If you're searching for a perfect last-minute Christmas gift, then one local animal shelter says you should not shy away from giving your loved one a pet as a present. WBUR's Stevie Chapman explains. The decision to give a pet as a gift shouldn't be made lightly, but that doesn't mean you should avoid the idea altogether. Animals need homes more than ever, so I think we shouldn't take away any opportunities for adoptions that can be successful under a blanket, no animals as gifts policy. That's Mike Kiley, director of adoption centers for MSPCA Angel. He says giving a pet as a gift doesn't have to come as a surprise. It really could be as simple as you get all the supplies, the cat litter box, the scoop, the toys, the litter, the food, and you give that as the present, and then you bring the person to an animal shelter to help pick out the cat that they really want. Kylie says the most important things to consider is if the person both wants a pet and has the ability to care for one. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 8.06. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. The Bruins begin a short road trip tonight as they visit the Winnipeg Jets. Sunshine today in Boston, temperatures in the mid-30s, overnight lows in the 20s, increasing clouds tomorrow with temperatures in the low 40s. On Sunday, clouds, a chance for a snow flurry in the morning, mid-40s, and on Christmas Day, partly sunny, near 50 degrees. It's 22 degrees now in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We've been talking with a CEO whose company is spreading artificial intelligence. Satya Nadella of Microsoft came up on a screen from his office outside Seattle. 23, I think, will be looked at as the year we started using AI. It just sort of became part of our lives. Chatbots captivated the tech industry. AI's potential to replace people became a factor in two big Hollywood strikes. And though it made less news, Microsoft is inserting AI-driven functions into everyday products it already sells to millions. Are you already telling GPT to draft memos for you as a CEO of Microsoft? 100%. Events this year demonstrated how much Nadella's memos matter. Microsoft has developed products with OpenAI, a high-profile developer. When they fired their CEO, Sam Altman, Nadella had the power to compel OpenAI's board to rehire him. Microsoft has shaped OpenAI's large language models so they can draft things for you in common software like Microsoft Excel, Outlook, or Word. I think the one big design decision we made was to think about this as a co-pilot, not as an autopilot, but as a co-pilot, designing in in such a way that the human is in control, human agency, human judgment is what is still the core, uh, and then building the product around it. Now that reference to human judgment gets to the anxieties about AI. How much can it really do for us? And what might it have the potential to do to us? He wants people to make the final decisions. You are the editor. That metaphor of thinking of anything that gets generated as a first draft, whether it's a piece of code or a piece of text or an image, that's probably a good way for us to think about how things get accelerated, but at the same time, humans have to do their job too. You know, I wanted to play with some of your technology, so I went on to Bing, your search engine, which has this co-pilot feature that you can use, and I asked it to help me prepare for this interview. And I said, tell me a few things that I didn't know about you, about Satya Nadella. And it gave me information almost in the form of a special Wikipedia article with a number of facts, some of which were true. And it also said, (laughs) and I'm quoting here, Nadella is a poetry lover, which I think is true, and has actually published a book of poems called To Shorten the Road. 
No, that is a hallucination. But I do have a poetry book right next to me, so you can <laughs> see. I love day. poetry. Okay, <laughs> but not go. that you wrote. Okay, okay. Well, I went back to the co-pilot actually and said, "What was your source for that information?" And got an apology. It apologized and said that was the wrong information. <laughs> um, is this what you want people to be aware to do? That that what they get back may be wrong. That they need to use their own brains. That is right. I mean, at the end of the day, this is not a database. It's a reasoning engine that goes and looks at all the data and tries to help you search through it and reason over it. Uh, and so that's why I think you have to design it with humans, teach humans to correct you know, mistakes, and the technology itself needs to get better, uh, if you will, in terms of being able to be more accurate and be grounded. Would you explain for the layman how you're preventing this technology from being used for ill purposes. Someone says, give me the instructions of how to make a bomb or any number of other things. What instructions are in there for the machine itself to tell it not to do something wrong? What you have to do is start putting it out in progressive ways for people to find all the issues. And then supported by all the technology, like filter out things you don't want it to say, Cla put classifiers, right? When somebody says, you know, give me instructions to make a bomb, that's a query that you can't put in to Bing chat and get a response because we filter those out. So those meaning, are the meaning kinds that of- Meaning Bing has been given an instruction by you, don't do that sort of thing. That is correct. That is correct. That sounds very smart. I'm impressed by how there are all these invisible instructions that go out with my query. But I also think about the flip side of trying to control the technology in that way. You become the gatekeeper. Is this right? I mean, you're going to decide which inf information I can get or don't receive, which might cause people to begin questioning you and your power. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think as producers of technology, one is we have to take initial responsibility for what are the safety standards around our products? But I fully expect that this is a place where in our democratic process, for our form of whether it's legislation or regulators will have a thing or two to say about what exactly is safe deployment. Do you anticipate, are you prepared for the possibility, even the likelihood that in the election year that's about to begin, um, you will be under pressure the way that social media firms have been in the past to allow certain information out or criticized for not allowing certain information out. We are already in the search business, right? So this is not new. This is right. basically effectively another way. I mean, search, when you sort of search the web, you get all kinds of results back. Uh, and there's a ranking algorithm today in search, like how, you know, and there's already people who have concerns about, hey, what is that ranking algorithm? What's the transparency around it and what have you? And so therefore, I think this is not complete new ground, but yes, we will be subject to the same set of pressures we had before uh, and subject ourselves, more importantly, to the standards of making sure that what we put in front of people is sort of verifiable and accurate and helpful. Thinkers about AI are divided between optimists who want to spread it as quickly as possible and pessimists who worry about what happens as computers grow smarter than people. Before talking with Nadella, we called Don Beyer, a Virginia congressman who is among the lawmakers considering how to regulate AI. We played the CEO a question that is on the lawmaker's mind. Uh, the biggest question I'd put to him is what does he see as, as the real existential risk from, from AI? Smart people, you know, the, the Stephen Hawkings, who really are afraid of when we make machines that are smarter than we are. I know a lot of the 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 computer scientists say, oh no, that'll never happen, or it'll be benign. 
Um, I don't think we can afford to ignore the most important question, which is what does it mean for the future of humanity? The question, of course, he asked is about existential uh, risk. I'll, come, I'll, I'll answer that very specifically first, which is I think if we somehow hand over control to AI and then we really don't have control of AI. That is the existential risk people talk about, right? What happens when you know you have a self-improving piece of software uh, that we are not in control of? But the real thing that we also talked about before was what is the here and now real-world harms, right? Whether it's bioterrorism or election interference or disinformation. So he sees two kinds of risks: short-term abuse by people and the long-term power of machines. Microsoft chose to approach both risks not by containing the technology, but by spreading it. When people use AI, their experience may show what it can do and how it needs to be limited. Any CEO who wants to maintain a long-term viable business for their investors uh, and all the other constituents has to be thinking about the consequences, not just in the, you know, in the immediate term, but long term. Let me ask a little more about that. I understand that a lot of people who work on AI do so with an almost religious fervor. They believe so strongly in the technology and they want it out in the world as quickly as possible. Uh, isn't there a risk that that attitude, commendable as it sounds, could lead us astray? I think people who are working on this technology, quite frankly, have, I think, the right balance. What I celebrate today, I mean, think about you know, we're not just talking about technology for technology's sake. We're talking about technology and its real world uh, impact, right? So for example, in a world where, you know, inflation adjusted, the economic growth around the world is what? Basically very low. So I think we need a new factor of production. What motivates a lot of us in digital technology is to use this technology to drive, I'll call it economic growth, that's compatible with our planet, it's compatible with creating more um, economic opportunity. Then the second aspect is what you said, which is uh, how do we do it safely? We can't break things because if we break things, one, you're not going to have a business. Um, and so therefore, thinking of both of these things simultaneously and the fact that we are having such a rich dialogue has to be celebrated. In addition to driving economic growth, can this technology drive economic inequality, uh, making more and more money for the people who control it the best while putting other people out of work? You know, it's an interesting question. First of all, there will be changes in jobs uh, and there will be new jobs that will be created. I'll give you an example. Today, you can participate in the increasing digitization inside your company. For example, you can build an application by just using a natural language dialogue interface. So that is suddenly, if you're in the healthcare or you're in retail as someone who's in the front line with domain expertise, is are essentially doing IT class jobs. That may have better wage support even. You're, you're telling me I don't speak the programming language or don't write it, but I speak English and I speak English to the computer and it figures out what I want. Correct. Correct. Do you anticipate a moment where there's a large language model and maybe it works with another AI program that can help it to see um, and this device uh, thinks it's smarter than you are and would do a better job than you do in running Microsoft? <laughs> you know, like already there are, there is the Microsoft Copilot is helping me compose emails better, uh, is able to help me, in fact, take a Teams meeting, remember things I said, others said better. And so, yes, I mean, I do think that it is helping me, at least in my current role, be a better sort of, uh, you know, 
person working at Microsoft. But do you actually worry about that moment? I, like, I don't worry about uh, the moment of uh, some technology replacing me. If anything, I want technology, hopefully, to remove the drudgery in work that all of us have. Satya Nadella is the AI-assisted CEO of Microsoft. His company was a big part of the news in artificial intelligence in 2023. And we want to note that Microsoft is a financial supporter of NPR. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the Georgia GOP chair discusses the Colorado Supreme Court decision that disqualifies former President Donald Trump from running in the state's primary election. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFA Boston, presenting Fashioned by Sargent. The exhibition the Boston Globe calls Unapologetically Gorgeous closes January 15th. Tickets at MFA.org. And we need a vacation. With over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at WeNeedAVacation.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alzo Slade admitted he was one of the 50% of men who think that if called on, they could land a commercial airliner. Nobody would die, but you would not be able to use the plane again. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. I am definitely not one of those men who thinks they could beat Olympic marathon medalist Molly Seidel in a race and will tell her so personally on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. This year, 17,000 people in need have written to the Boston Globe's Globe Santa to request toys for their kids for the holidays. This afternoon on WBUR, how the letters shed light on the most difficult issues in the headlines. That's today after four on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Sunshine today, temperatures reaching the mid-30s, clear tonight in the 20s, increasing clouds tomorrow in the low 40s, mostly cloudy on Sunday, a chance for a snow flurry in the morning, and temperatures in the mid-40s. For Christmas Day, partly sunny, high near 50 degrees. It's a brisk 22 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Whether you're decking the halls or jingling the bells, holiday music is all around. Maybe it's on your radio or at the grocery store. It can take you back in time. And that is nostalgia. Daniel Levitin is a musician and professor emeritus of psychology in neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal. He's done research on how feelings affect our bodies. When we hear a song we haven't heard in a long time, it can trigger long, dormant memories, even ones we thought we'd forgotten. And the reason is that a lot of songs we hear are attached to a particular time and place, and so they get tagged with all the events and feelings and sights and sounds of that time and place. The song, Daniel, that brings me the most joy during Christmas is Wham's Last Christmas. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. And here's a, a little backstory on that. So way back in the day when I heard that song in the 80s, I was really into this girl who told me that she liked me back. And I'm not kidding you, Daniel, just like the lyrics of the song. gave her my heart and the very next day she gave it away to someone else she was flirting with this with this other guy so <laughs> when i think back on that song I, I get all kinds of feelings and emotion in addition to it being just a fabulous christmas song and that same song would mean something entirely different to someone else when we talk about using music as medicine and having you know a prescription you have your own autobiographical associations because it's unique to you and the song is so personal it can unlock all kinds of feelings. Right, that song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, Daniel, I've always felt that when I listen to it, I mean, I don't have a connection to it necessarily, but it sounds like such a sad song. And even though I have no connection to it, I feel sad hearing it. You know, I have a friend named Dylan O'Brien, who's a great songwriter, singer, and producer. And he says, about songwriters, I'm going to make you cry and you're going to love me for it. What's a song that makes you cry? Oh, The Randall Knife by Guy Clark, a song about burying his father. My father had a Randall knife. My mother gave it to him. That always just gets me. And it's a beautiful sadness. The sadness that music evokes is safe in the sense that you know that this isn't really happening in the world. It's a way for us to try on emotions of terrible negative consequence without actually having something bad happen to us. And that's why I would imagine that there are so many movies and songs that induce these kinds of feelings, especially around the holidays. Right, and sadness is actually cathartic, it's helpful. And sad music can release the hormone prolactin which is the same soothing and tranquilizing hormone that's released when mothers are nursing their infants. So you get this kind of a warm feeling, almost like you've just had a, a hot bourbon uh, from listening to the sad music. Daniel Levitson, author and musician in Los Angeles, also a professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal. Daniel, thanks for weighing in on this. Thanks for having me. Time now for StoryCorps. John Cruitt's mother died just days before Christmas in 1958. He's never forgotten the way his third grade teacher, Cecile Doyle, supported him. More than 50 years later, he wrote to her and soon after, they reunited. When I returned to school, you waited until the other children left the room at the end of the day, and you told me that you were there if I needed you, and you bent over and kissed me on the head. 
It was really the only time someone said to me, I know what you're feeling and I know what you're missing. And I felt that things really would be okay. When I found out she died, I could certainly relate to that because when I was 11, my own father died. And you just don't know how you're going to go on without that person. Many years later, when I became a teacher, I started to think to myself, here I am with a memory of a teacher who changed my life. And I've never told her that. And your letter could not have come at a better time because my husband had Parkinson's and he was going downhill. And I read this beautiful letter and I just was overwhelmed. Well, the funny thing is I typed the letter. I was afraid my penmanship (laughs) wasn't going to meet your standards. Well, after all this time, Mrs. Doyle, all I can say to you is thank you. Cecile Doyle died in 2019. Recently, John sat down with Cecile's daughter, Allison. My relationship with you is very important to me because all those years I was away from your mother, 54 years, I didn't know if she was being loved. And when I met you, it made me feel so much better. Do you remember the day we actually had the reunion? To see you standing in a doorway with the flowers, approaching one another, and instinctively, she gave you a kiss on the forehead. It was an absolutely unbelievable feeling that I had. It was like I was seeing Mrs. Doyle and I was seeing my mother at the same time. We had put a book together of all of the pictures of your reunion, the letter, and she would show friends. And we had that book at her funeral service. So that, for me, I think helped me through my grief because we get wrapped up in the person going and leaving us. And then you realize it's about what have they left behind. I'm just so grateful also that in some small way, I was able to bring her a little bit of joy before it was too late. And that was in a big way, John. (laughs) I almost feel like you're a brother. I suspect our mothers have something to do with it. They might quite well, yes. So has that something to do with that, I think. So what a gift they gave us. They certainly did. Allison Doyle and John Cruitt in Tuaku, New Jersey. Their StoryCorps conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, the Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on WBUR's Morning Edition, Japan's government is mired in the worst corruption scandal in three decades. The prime minister struggling with allegations that ruling party politicians violated campaign finance laws. It's 829. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. says she's ready to vote on a Security Council resolution involving Israel and Hamas. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says a vote's been delayed several times over the wording of the document. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield told reporters that there is a new text and she seemed to be satisfied with the changes in it. She didn't say how the U.S. would vote, whether it would support it, say yes or abstain, but the goal of all these changes is to make sure that the U.S. is not going to veto the resolution as it has done with others and not look as isolated. The resolution is aimed at getting more humanitarian aid into Gaza, where conditions for Palestinian civilians have been described by the U.N. as grim. The Gaza Health Ministry says Israeli forces have killed more than 20,000 people since Hamas attacked southern Israel on October 7th, killing more than 1,200 people and sparking a war. A Pentagon spokesman says Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen need to stop their attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. They are negatively affecting the economic prosperity of millions of people, billions of people worldwide, uh, and uh, that has got to stop. That's Brigadier General Pat Ryder commenting on a U.S.-led 10-nation effort to protect commercial ship traffic. This is NPR News. A majority of people in the U.S. have not gotten the updated flu and COVID-19 vaccines. NPR's Maria Godoy says that's according to the latest data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As of December 9th, only 18.3% of U.S. adults had gotten an updated COVID shot, and only 42% had gotten vaccinated against flu. Data from the CDC also found that less than one in five adults aged 60 and older had gotten the new vaccine against respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, a respiratory illness that can be life-threatening for older adults, as well as infants. Public health officials have been urging people to get all three shots if they're eligible. The CDC issued a health alert last week warning that the U.S. is seeing rising hospitalization rates for COVID, flu, and RSV, even as vaccination rates lag. The CDC says that could lead to more cases of all three viruses and more strain on the healthcare system in coming weeks. Maria Godoy, NPR News. The airline industry says it's hopeful holiday travelers will encounter few problems at the nation's airports over the next week to 10 days. The number of flight cancellations this year is at its lowest level in five years, though wintry weather in some areas remains a threat. Heavy rains are moving through Southern California. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Sharon Brody. Many people in Massachusetts plan to drive to their destination over the holiday. That mirrors predictions nationwide. AAA expects 104 million Americans to hit the roads the next few days. Mark Shieldrop is a spokesperson with AAA Northeast. He predicts the worst day on the road will be tomorrow. A lot of folks will be traveling then. And then, interestingly, our forecast calls out Thursday, the 28th. That appears to be a day when there's going to be a lot of holiday travelers mixing with folks who are still going to be working, especially that commute time in the morning, but especially in the afternoon. Shieldrop says if you need to drive on those days, then you'll have better luck after 7 or 8 p.m. For anyone who is flying, things look smooth this morning at Logan. FlightAware reports just five delays for departing flights and no cancellations. 
Several members of the state's congressional delegation are asking the Pentagon to review the safety of the V-22 Osprey aircraft. That's the type of aircraft that went down off the coast of Japan last month. An airman from western Massachusetts was one of eight people killed in the crash. A problem with the Osprey is believed to be the cause. Congressman Richard Neal tells MassLive he wants a thorough investigation into the aircraft. It's been involved in 14 crashes since 2007. A New Hampshire man now awaits sentencing for threats and vandalism against two New Hampshire public radio journalists. The 32-year-old man from Salem, New Hampshire, pleaded guilty in a Boston federal court this week. He admitted to harassing and intimidating the victims. That included vandalizing their homes on five separate occasions. A sentencing hearing is scheduled for March. It's 834. WVUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins will be in Winnipeg tonight to skate with the Jets. Sunshine today in Boston, temperatures in the mid-30s, in the 20s overnight, then getting cloudier tomorrow in the low 40s. On Sunday, mostly cloudy, a chance of a snow flurry in the morning, mid-40s. And on Christmas Day, partly sunny, high near 50 degrees. It is 22 degrees now in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career. With Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Former President Donald Trump is trying to capitalize on the Colorado Supreme Court decision that bars him from running in the state's primary election. Trump, who in the past has been able to turn his legal challenges into rising primary poll numbers, is already fundraising off the decision. His team has made it clear that they would swiftly appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. Similar challenges could be launched in other states. Now, to hear how state Republican parties are dealing with this, we reached out to Josh McCoon. He's the chairman of Georgia's Republican Party. So, Josh, what was your reaction to the Colorado Supreme Court decision? Well, it's just absurd. You know, these challenges have been made all over the country. Courts have uniformly rejected them. And we have a Colorado Supreme Court entirely composed of Democratic uh, appointees, and three of them even rejected it. So you have four left-wing judges trying to deprive the people of Colorado of the candidate of their choice. It's simply absurd. Now, the former president does face a number of legal challenges, although he has not been charged with insurrection, um, and that's what the Colorado decision is based on. Do you believe, uh, Josh, that a state should have the right to disqualify a candidate over their behavior? The president of the United States is an elected office. The qualifications are defined by the United States Constitution. States cannot alter or amend those. And thankfully, most judges recognize that. So I expect the U.S. Supreme Court will swiftly reverse this decision. So that's definitely a no from you on that. That is a no. (laughs) Okay. Would a conviction in any of Donald Trump's pending cases change your opinion on that? No, we've had people convicted of crimes run for president in, in the past. 
Uh, the people of this country are sovereign. They get to decide who the candidate of their choice is going to be. Now, Donald Trump, if you believe the polls, is the clear frontrunner to win the Republican nomination. His legal issues seemingly have not had any effect on his campaign. Uh, Josh, do you believe this court decision actually boosts his chances to win the nomination? I think it is energizing Republicans to say, we've got to take this country back because we've got to get back to a situation where we don't prosecute people because they are our political adversaries. What has this done for the way the Georgia GOP does voter outreach? What have you been able to do in the last few days? Well, we've just seen throughout this entire process so much energy uh, with our grassroots. 70% of our delegates at our convention back in June were brand new, had never participated before. We're seeing that at county party meetings. We're seeing that in our voter outreach. People are incredibly energized and excited because they want our country to go back to a place where if you lose an election, you don't have to worry about being indicted or interrogated by law enforcement. Now, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy in a video posted on X yesterday said he would withdraw from the Colorado primary, and he called on other GOP candidates to do the same in response to the court decision. Let's listen to that. And I demand that Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and Nikki Haley do the same thing, or else these Republicans are simply complicit in this unconstitutional attack on the way we conduct our constitutional republic. If what happened in Colorado were to happen in other states and Republican candidates wanted to withdraw their names in solidarity with Donald Trump, does it weaken the potential presidential nominee in the general election? Well, I think what needs to happen is what Colorado Republican Party Chairman Dave Williams has suggested, which is he'll simply move to a caucus so that all the candidates can participate. And I think that's what any state chair should do if they're confronted with a similar situation. The people have the right to the candidate of their choice, whoever that may be. That's the principle I'll stand on, and I believe it's the principle that my fellow Republican National Committee members will stand on. Are you preparing for a similar challenge in Georgia? No, I don't believe we'll see that sort of challenge in Georgia. We've gone through our process of submitting our list to the uh, Secretary of State. I'm not aware of any legal challenge uh, since we did that a month ago, and hopefully we will be able to conduct our primary free from interference of left-wing groups that want judges to take decisions away from Georgia voters. Josh Bakun is the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Violent rhetoric is raging in some corners of the Internet after this week's historic ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court. Yeah, after judges barred Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot, some supporters of the former president are fuming over the decision. And people online have begun circulating personal information about Colorado Supreme Court justices who ruled against Trump. Some are even calling for civil war. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is here to tell us more. You know, I was reading some of this, Odette, and I thought, oh, I've seen all this before. And then I thought to myself, that's not good. Yeah. I mean, A, on some of these far-right platforms, uh, this kind of talk is everyday stuff. Um, but when there are events that affect Trump adversely, uh, whether it's an indictment or, say, the search of his property at Mar-a-Lago, um, it spikes. And so this time, you know, we're seeing claims online that uh, this is a Democratic Party conspiracy to interfere in the election. We're seeing calls to arm up uh, or to hurt or even kill perceived political foes. You know, so far, people monitoring these spaces say they're not seeing indications of a credible or imminent threat. But they also caution that this doesn't mean it should be ignored. So, yeah, authorities still want to be watchful then. 
Of course. I mean, you may recall a that after the Mar-a-Lago search, uh, for example, um, online rhetoric heated up and there was an individual who attacked an FBI field office in Cincinnati. Um, so it is important to understand how the baseline threat level is evolving. You know, one person I spoke to who's been keeping an eye on this online activity is Daniel J. Jones. He's with the nonpartisan nonprofit Advanced Democracy. He says he's not just watching the uptick in violent language. I think it's equally concerning that we're not seeing pushback against this language. We're not seeing pushback against dehumanizing language from the presumptive Republican nominee. We're not seeing pushback from language from political leaders on the right. We're seeing the mainstreaming of this extremism and this, this encouragement of violence in right-wing media. And I, you know, I hear this across the board when I speak to extremism researchers. You know, What they are concerned about is violence from the right, and they say that if high-profile figures would just clearly disavow that violence that some are calling for, it could really help bring the temperature down. But when it comes to this ruling in Colorado, I mean, many are expecting that the ruling from that court may not be the final word on this. So any acknowledgement of that? Yes. Um, in fact, I spoke with Catherine Keneally of another organization, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, um, and she said she noticed this. We did also see a large number of people post statements that they weren't concerned because they believe that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to shoot it down anyways. So um, a common refrain that I started seeing was the use of nothing burger. Even absent violence, you know, this is still very concerning to people who care about democracy, right? Because, you know, even when threats of violence against uh, judges, voters, really anyone participating in civic life um, become normal, that can have a chilling effect. That's NPR's Odette Youssef. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report. A record number of people are fleeing Cuba. A major force in this recent wave of migration has a lot to do with economics. Basic necessities are hard to come by for many people on the island. In Boston today, sunshine, temperatures in the mid-30s, clear overnight in the 20s. Increasing clouds tomorrow, highs in the low 40s. On Sunday, mostly cloudy, a chance of snow flurries in the morning, mid-40s on Sunday. Then on Christmas Day, partly sunny, high near 50 degrees. It's 22 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Workers at Boston-based Wayfair are being encouraged to work longer hours in the new year. That's according to an end-of-year message from the online furniture company's CEO. In the letter, Niraz Shah told employees that history does not reward laziness with success. He also suggests that employees should find ways to blend their work life with their life. Needham-based Grillo's Pickles is expanding its lawsuit that accuses a competitor of stealing its recipe. The company's suing New Jersey-based Patriot Pickles over products it makes for Wahlburgers and Whole Foods. In the new complaint, Grillo's claims the company is misleading the public to make people believe their product is superior to Grillo's. Grillo argues that threatens its livelihood. 
Patriot has not commented. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. Japan's government is mired in the worst corruption scandal in three decades. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is struggling with allegations that politicians in the ruling party violated political finance laws. And the outcome could have a lasting impact in Japan and beyond. Here's NPR's Anthony Kuhn. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told reporters last week he felt a strong sense of crisis because of the scandal. I will work like a ball of fire, he said, and lead the Liberal Democratic Party to regain the people's trust. But it's Kishida's approval ratings that are going down in flames. A Mainichi poll found 79% of respondents disapprove of his performance, worse than any Japanese leader in more than seven decades. Some Japanese even feel the scandal poses a challenge to one of Asia's oldest democracies. Japanese democracy's strength is going to be tested. Hitoshi Tanaka is a former diplomat. He says that Japan has seen corruption scandals before. Like this one, they involved internal party factions and money. These scandals have brought down previous administrations, and Tanaka says it could happen this time too. And I have the feeling that the current political funds scandal may be deep enough to lead to regime change in this country. Changing the regime, he adds, could change policies, including towards the U.S., but support in Japan for its alliance with the U.S. is likely to remain solid, he says. Prosecutors, meanwhile, are looking into allegations that ministers and lawmakers took kickbacks for political funds they raised and poured millions of dollars in fundraising proceeds into slush funds, none of which was reported as required by law. Last week, Kishida sacked four cabinet ministers, all linked to the scandal and all from the party faction previously headed by the late former prime minister Shinzo Abe. Tanaka says Abe was so powerful that his faction members apparently thought they could get away with flouting political finance laws. And I guess that this is very much to do with the abuse of power. Since its creation 68 years ago, the LDP has been made up of competing factions or parties within the party. The factions choose the party's president, who usually becomes prime minister. If that's confusing, just think of it this way. The easiest way to understand factions is that they are basically groups who try to make their leader prime minister. That's veteran political journalist Hiroshi Izumi. He says that behind the current scandal is a struggle among the factions. There's no proof of that, but Izumi believes the result will be the end of the Abe faction and a big shift in power within the LDP. And that, he adds, may overshadow anything else Prime Minister Fumio Kishida achieves. He will put an end to Abe's dictatorial politics. And Abe's faction, which symbolizes those politics, would be destroyed. I think that would be Kishida's legacy as prime minister. 
The outcome, though, depends somewhat on the prosecutors, and they're up against the clock. They can't arrest lawmakers while Parliament is in session, so that gives them until the legislature reopens sometime in January to build their cases and get their men. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with more on the investigation into yesterday's mass shooting in Prague. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. WBUR has been reporting for months on the family shelter system here in Massachusetts. It's bursting at the seams. During the course of our reporting, it's moved from a low simmer to a boil, and it shows no signs of relenting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This kind of in-depth reporting takes investment. Make a year-end contribution at WBUR.org. And thank you. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The United Nations Security Council could vote today on a call for a pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. President Biden is pardoning thousands of people convicted under federal and Washington, D.C. marijuana laws. And the U.S. government is planning a crackdown on financial firms that help Russia buy military equipment. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. Sunny today in Boston, temperatures reaching the mid-30s in the 20s overnight. Increasing clouds tomorrow in the low 40s. Sunday, clouds, a chance of snow flurries in the morning, mid-40s, and on Christmas Day, partly sunny and near 50 degrees. It is a crisp 22 degrees in Boston. Why Cuba has lost 4% of its population to migration in the last two years. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshor, in for David Brancaccio. Cuba in a moment, but first, let's talk homes. A lot of people are kind of stuck in their homes. They have low mortgage rates from years gone by, and they don't want to give those rates up for a new house with higher rates. That means a lot of the supply on the market has been coming from newly built homes. We're going to find out how those new home sales are doing later this morning from the Commerce Department. The expectation is that they will have increased as mortgage rates have come down by a percentage point in the last couple of months. Marketplace in Nova Safo has more. The average interest rate on a 30-year home loan is now at 6.8%, the lowest since June. Mortgage rates are tied to the benchmark 10-year Treasury yield, which itself responds to changes in the Federal Reserve's overnight funds rate. Fed officials have been raising that interest rate, now holding it steady, and expected to start reducing it sometime next year. In anticipation, the 10-year Treasury yield has been falling too, and with it, mortgage rates. They hit a high in late October. The average rate on a 30-year home loan was at almost 8%. It has since been falling. That's been good news for the housing market. Existing home sales in November rose after five straight months of declines. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. 
China is taking on its online gaming industry with new restrictions aimed at limiting in-game purchases and compulsive playing behavior. The announcement wiped nearly $80 billion in market value out of China's two biggest gaming companies, Tencent and NetEase. Here's the BBC's Monica Miller in Singapore. This is basically Beijing officials trying to rein in what they see as a growing trend of gaming addiction, particularly among young people. So what these new rules require are online games to set spending limits. Also, in-game measures that would incentivize high spending, for example, giving them money basically for every time they log in, all of that's going to be banned. Plus, a lot of the software is going to require pop-ups that warn of irrational playing behavior, depending on how long you've been on one of these games. I mean, this is a massive blow to the world's biggest games market, uh, which really just returned to growth not too long ago. The BBC's Monica Miller in Singapore. The latest measure of inflation, that's the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, mouthful, uh, shows prices increased year over year in November by about 3.2%, which is less than expected. Let's see how markets feel about it. Let's do the numbers. Dow and s and uh, Dow Nasdaq futures are up in around a tenth of a percent, uh, with the Dow future up uh, 97 points. The S&P is also up uh, barely. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 3.874%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. Cubans are fleeing their country in droves. Around 400,000 Cubans came to the U.S. over the last two years. This wave has a lot to do with a deteriorating economic situation on the island. Guillermo Grenier is here to help us understand what's happening. He's a professor of sociology at Florida International University. Welcome. Great to be here. So Cuba has lost 4% of its population in two years as people leave. You just got back from a trip there. What is happening there that is driving so many people to leave? It's primarily an economy that just cannot get back to pre-2020 levels. And what's worse is there's no plan in sight. People are every day having a very rough time finding just the basics. Things are bad, but there seems to be a new sense of hopelessness. In so many places, there was a big comeback, economically speaking, after the pandemic. Why did that not happen in Cuba? It's a, a multitude of reasons. Since the 1990s, we've had two currencies where you have one for tourists, in essence, and the one that Cubans live their national economic lives with, the peso cubano. Economists from all over the world have been telling them, you have to unite this currency. This is ridiculous. Well, they did it, but they did it right in the middle of the pandemic. So inflation just went rampant. And then you had the fact that the economy had doubled down on tourism. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic was there and they had one trick pony economy and it didn't snap back. Since they doubled down on tourism, all other sectors of the economy suffered. I mean, Cuba's importing just about every food product that finally makes it into the street if it does. To return for a moment to this exodus of people, how is the Cuban government responding to that? 
So now they're thinking of immigration, number one, as a problem, which is kind of new in the sense that before there was always some justification, either blaming the U.S. policies of receiving how we receive Cubans, but now they see it as a problem. And then now they're seeing how can we maintain in touch with these folks that are leaving? It's not unusual to have expats that live in other countries. For Cuba, it is, but in general, in the world, that's a phenomenon that's been you know long understood. Uh, now they want to establish that link between the expat community, the diaspora community, and the country. The gut instinct is correct. I'm doing interviews of new arrivals here, and it's clear that their motivation to leave is dominantly economics. Economics in Cuba is not that separate from the government, given it's a centralized economy. So they blame the government for them having to leave, but it's because of economic reasons. And they're immediately thinking of how to do business back in Cuba. The bright side of this huge immigration is that in the long run, it might actually benefit the Cuban economic development. Cuba is not what you might call a, a market-embracing or market-oriented economy. Is the government there equipped with the tools necessary to kind of get out of this? Well, the short answer is probably no. <laughs> Right now, there is a sense that the folks that want more opening up of the economy, particularly, have a leg up because the situation is so dire that folks are beginning to think somewhat outside the box. And uh, creating these small business enterprises, the MIPIMIS, that is a big uh, step forward. And they are growing. There is a class structure being developed, not as quickly as during the Obama years. But even now, you do have these private sector enterprises that are beginning to grow. Guillermo Grenier is professor of sociology in the Department of Global and Sociocultural Studies at Florida International University. Uh, professor Grenier, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And we've got a lot more from that interview on our website and podcast. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Sunshine today in Boston, mid-30s, getting cloudier tomorrow in the low 40s. On Sunday, clouds around, a chance of a snow flurry in the morning, mid-40s. And for Christmas Day, partly sunny skies and near 50 degrees. It is 22 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next at 9 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alzo Slade admitted he was one of the 50% of men who think that if called on, they could land a commercial airliner. Nobody would die, but you would not be able to use the plane again. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. I am definitely not one of those men who thinks they could beat Olympic marathon medalist Molly Seidel in a race and will tell her so personally on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.